Acts chapter 15 this evening. If I had to title this chapter, it would probably be one of the church's finest hours. Yes, I believe in the history of the church that this would go down as one of the finest hours or seasons, if you will, in in church history, and I think we're going to see why tonight. Before we get into this, though, and Nicole even alluded to it in, in her prayer there, there's nothing glamorous about this chapter, if you will. There's nothing flashy about this chapter. It, it, it's more dealing with a lot of the nuts and bolts, behind-the-scenes sort of stuff that goes on in the church. But I want us to take encouragement from that. Um, in fact, now that I'm thinking about it, um, I like what Paul said to the Corinthians when he said, you know, we spend a lot of of time and energy and effort on the externals of our human body to make them presentable. And yet he says, the real important parts are the comely parts that you can't see. You know, the organs on the inside that really make us, you know, alive every day, you know. There's maybe nothing you know, flashy and glamorous about the heart or the lungs or the liver and all those things, but they're absolutely essential, you know, to our, to our being. And, and what you find then in Acts chapter 15 is this great encouragement, I think, from the Lord because I'll be very, you know, transparent with you. This was one of those chapters that I would say as a pastor, I would go, I, I wouldn't ever choose to teach on that. You know, there, there's really... You know, to me, there was nothing like, and then God was like, oh, Jeff, you're, you're missing it. Because in what, what we might consider to be very mundane, routine, or just even behind-the-scenes stuff that's got to be done, God wants us to see that's really the essential part of our life. Because let's face it, even using, I'll use even like, Nicole and I as an example, but obviously I could use any of you. What you see us do up here on the stage on Sunday and Wednesday, obviously there is way more that goes into this behind the scenes than what you all see up front. Way more worshiping and praying and studying and collaborating and talking to God and talking to, you know, way more behind the scenes than you'd ever see here. And that's true for all of us. It's like an athlete who, most of the time, they're spending time practicing rather than performing, right, in a sense, by actually going through the game. And I remember when I played sports, you know, six days out of the week you practice. It was only the one day of the week that you, you know, got out there and actually, you know, played the game, so to speak. And, and that's what we're seeing here. And, and God wants us to see how important that is because, in a sense, what any of us do in front of others. What any of us does as a church, in a sense, out in front in our public ministry is all built on the foundation of our private ministry and of what goes on behind the scenes, our preparation, our our planning. All of that stuff that nobody else sees is absolutely essential and valuable to having a, a, a successful public ministry, public service. 
And you see that even here with the church that has to go through a lot of stuff behind the scenes, and yet it was absolutely essential. Again, maybe not very glamorous, maybe not very flashy, but what we're going to see is through all of it, the church was being strengthened. And, and if I, I guess I could say one other thing, it would be this. It is the cumulative effect of the daily disciplines of living that over time really make the difference in our life. It is not the one or two big things that we do or that happen to us or the experiences. It is really the everyday getting down into the dirt, the daily grind, the routine, whatever, but doing it in such a way with such a, an enthusiasm for the Lord and such an excellence that over time it really thrusts us forward as a Christian. And the same thing is true for the church. You know, we're not necessarily going to have every Sunday and Wednesday is going to be a, you know, knock it out of the park type thing in a sense. We're, we might not leave there going, wow, that was just such a great experience to be at church. But it's the idea that over the weeks that we meet and the months and then as we've been doing the years that there's a cumulative effect of just coming together as God's people and experiencing and going through all of that, you see, that that really makes the difference. So I sort of divided this chapter up by using five different words that begin with the letter D. And I'm just going to give them to you so that you sort of have a, an outline, if you will, a general outline of where we're headed. The first section deals with debate. You see that word in verse 2 in your net Bible. Then in verse 6, there is deliberation. Then in verse 22, there is decision. Then in verse 30, there is deliverance of this letter. And finally in verse 39, there is disagreement. These are the five sections I want to sort of zero in on this tonight. And I want to begin, obviously, at the beginning of the chapter in chapter 15, verse 1. Notice the first thing that comes up in the church. Now, some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's pretty big. In fact, in verse 5, others said, it is necessary to circumcise the Gentiles and to order them to observe the law of Moses. Now, when this began to infiltrate, notice what Paul and Barnabas did in verse 2. They had a major argument and debate with the people that were espousing this doctrine. Why? Well... In the church, there are a lot of times where we're going to have our differences of opinion on things. There's a lot of times where the Bible says, you know, one feels they have liberty to do something and one doesn't. And there can be differences of opinion and there certainly is differences as far as preferences go in the body. And we have to learn to set aside our individual preferences and our selfish agendas and come together and be unified. But there are certain things, there are certain doctrines, there are certain fundamental beliefs 
that you and I cannot just let go and set aside. They are fundamental to our very faith and what we believe. And we need to be willing to fight for them because they are the foundation of our faith. And when these people came along and basically were teaching others that you cannot be saved unless you are circumcised, all of a sudden salvation was no longer by grace through faith. Now it was back to works. And Paul and Barnabas had to stand up and go, no, there, there's a lot of stuff we're not going to argue about. There's a lot of stuff we're not going to debate about. But when it comes to the matter of salvation and how one is saved, that is something we all need to stand up for and we all as the true church need to agree on. that We are saved by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Are we willing to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered unto the saints? Jude asks that question, if you will, or encourages that in that short book right before the book of Revelation. We have to, first of all, know what is the faith. What are those fundamental doctrines that all of our, our Christian faith hangs on? And then are we willing to, in a sense, fight for those and, and willing to go to bat for those and say, no, 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 if you're a spouse, that's false doctrine. You're going to lead people into hell for all of eternity if you go that route. We need to stand up for the truth, you see. Because as even as Jesus said, it's only through the truth that men are set free. And here's the thing that Satan will do. Satan will tell the truth a hundred times if it means then he can throw one lie in there to get someone off track. We're going to see that in next week's chapter where a gal follows Paul around and basically is saying the truth even though she's demon-possessed and the demon is controlling her. Are there times where Satan will actually espouse truth? Yeah, if it means ultimately his goal is to throw some error in with the truth. And we have to be aware of that. And that goes back again to what's going on behind the scenes. Are we taking the time every day to be in the scriptures, to saturate our minds with God's truth, to know the difference between truth and error. And then, even as we've sung about tonight, and every, are we inviting the Holy Spirit in who ultimately, as Jesus even said to his followers, is our ultimate guide and helper to discern whether something is of God or not. And he's the one, Jesus said, that will guide you into all truth. And obviously, if something is being taught or preached or or sung, or whatever, that is not in alignment with God, the Holy Spirit will let us know if we are in tune with the Holy Spirit, you see. So Paul and Barnabas were willing to debate that issue because people's souls were on the line. This, this wasn't just a matter of preference here. This was dealing with how does one get saved. But I want you to notice this. This is why I say that this chapter really shows one of the church's finest hours. Because the church then appointed Paul and Barnabas and some others from among them to go up to meet with the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about this point of disagreement. You see, 
No one at this point in the church was taking any kind of authority upon themselves. It had to come from the church. There was authority through the church, and there was accountability in the church. No one was going off on their own doing something without being under the submission to the church as a whole, and that's the way it still should be. And that's why many Christians get into trouble by going out on their own and not willing to come and be under some kind of church. It, it's not that the church is, is not going to allow you to be who you want to be and who God created you to be if it's the right kind of church. It's the idea that God gave us the church so it could be a place not only where his authority flows from, but also where we can be accountable to each other, including me, you see. We all should be willing to be accountable to each other. So no one made a move here unless they all got together as the church and decided this is what we need to do. It's a lot of times how cults get started, is people just go off on their own without anyone holding them accountable for what they're saying, what they're teaching, and all of this. And it can be very, very dangerous unless you're under the authority and the accountability of the church. So notice, verse 3, they were sent on their way by who? The church, you see. The church not only appointed who would go, it was the church that sent them on their way and in a sense said, you're going as our representatives. I love this. As they passed through though Phoenicia and Samaria, they were relating at length the conversion of the Gentiles and bringing great joy to all the brothers. That should always be the case. And we hear of people coming to know the Lord. It should bring us great joy. You know, it is said in the, in the word of God that there is great joy in the presence of the angels over one sinner that repents. Notice it doesn't say there's great joy of the angels. It says in the presence of the angels. I believe that is the redeemed of God who have died and went to heaven. And even in heaven, there is joy when they hear that there is one sinner who now has turned to the Lord and is now saved. And you and I, one of the things that should give us great joy is when we hear and when we see people coming to know the Lord and putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. When they arrived in Jerusalem, verse 4, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all the things that God had done with them. And then, of course, we've already read, but there were some who again were saying it is necessary to basically go back under the law and that salvation is not grace through faith. So that's the debate part, you see. Again, don't like it. Hey, I don't like it sometimes when I've got to be in a, a situation where I feel like I'm in, in an argument with somebody or I'm debating somebody. I don't like it, but there's times where it might be necessary if it's, for the good of the church and, and the good of the glory of God. Again, behind the scenes stuff that nobody else might see, but it's very, very important and integral to the health of the church. Well, then notice the deliberation, verse 6. Then the apostles and the elders, the spiritual leaders, basically met together to deliberate about this matter. There's times where... Yeah, we need to debate, if you will, and stand up for the truth. There's other times where then as Christians, God says, I want you to come together as my people and I want you to learn to deliberate about this issue so that you can come to a common consensus 
so that you can then send forth a unified message, basically. You see. Let me share with you why this is important. I'm going to skip ahead to the letter and the contents of the letter that they send, but I want you to go over to chapter 15 and look at verse 24. As part of the letter, notice what they say. Since we have heard that some have gone out from among us with no orders from us, again, no authority, no accountability from the church, and have confused you, upsetting your minds by what they have said and taught. You see. God wants it to be a, a message where people aren't getting confused because they're hearing one thing over here and another thing over here, where it's upsetting because we're spreading things that aren't in the Word of God and all of that. Again, all important stuff. Learning how to deliberate with each other and, again, come to a, uh, either a compromise or a common consensus of this is what we need to set forward. Let me use a, a, an example from the home. You know, uh, many times children will try to divide and conquer their parents, you know, uh, I'm going to go to mom and see if mom will let me do that. No, I'm going to go to dad. And, see. and they go separately because, again, uh, parents have to learn, you know what, when we start seeing our children do that, we've got to come together, and as parents, we have got to present a unified message to our children. Otherwise, there's going to be this, well, dad said this, or mom said this, or there's going to be confusion as far as what is the standard and, and what is the expectation here. Same thing is true in the church. We can't have one group of people in the church going, well, I think it's this, and the other thing is this. No, no, we've got to come together and have a common understanding and deliberate these things. Notice, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up. And I've got to say, I think this could be Peter's finest hour. At least it's recorded in Scripture. I mean, he doesn't say a lot, but what he says in a short amount of time, he nails it. I mean, he nails it. He stands up and he says, Brothers, you know that some time ago God chose me to preach to the Gentiles so that they would hear the message of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, has testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He made no distinction between them and us, cleansing their hearts by faith, so now why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus in the same way as they are. And all I can say is amen to that, Peter. You nailed it. There was a voice that was able to stand up in the midst of all this and basically cut through it all and lay it out there very clearly and concisely and bring it all right there before the, the leaders. By the way, one thing I'd like to go back to that Peter said that's so important, and that is what he says in verse 8, God knows the heart. He is reminding us that's why salvation is by grace through faith. It's not by adhering to the law. It's not by being a good, it's the heart. And the heart can only be changed by God's grace. It cannot be changed by adhering to the law. God knows the heart. And, and salvation is a work of the heart. Our Christian life is our work of our heart. 
as we try to encourage you all. Your Christian life is all about your heart. Your worship should come from your heart. The, the love that you have for the Word of God should come from our heart. Our prayers should come from our heart. Everything that we do as a Christian should be a matter of the heart because that's the way God designed it, which is why the greatest commandment in the Bible that's recorded is what? Love the Lord your God with all your what? Heart, soul, mind, and strength. And by the way, love, that's a matter of the heart. That's where that love comes from. It comes from our heart. So there's deliberation. Then notice, verse 12, the whole group, notice this. This is important. Kept quiet and listened to Barnabas and Paul. Oh, my goodness. How good is it to be reminded that God wants his people sometimes to just shut our mouths, and be willing to listen and keep quiet and listen to others. It's so important that we learn to do that, especially as God's people, because we actually might learn something from what someone else might say. Again, it goes back to what we were sharing on Sunday about being humble and being teachable, you know? And wouldn't we want others to keep quiet and listen to us if we feel God has something that he wants us to share as well? Absolutely. And so again, I love what was going on here. Again, nothing, you know, glamorous, nothing flashy, but what was going on here was so important because the church was dealing with some really important issues, but it was stuff that nobody else maybe out, outwardly would go, oh, I, I want to be a part of that, you know. That's it's not a revival. It's not some great healing that's taking place. It's just all the inner workings of the church and relationships and dealing with things and working through things and how to work through things. But that, that's the essence of our life. That's what we do every day, right? Sometimes we enter debate. Sometimes we've got to deliberate. And so they explained, Paul and Barnabas, all the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles. And after they stopped speaking, James the guy who wrote the book of James, replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, I think that was strategic. He used Peter's name, Simeon, has explained how God first concerned himself to select from among the Gentiles a people for his name. The words of the prophets agree with this, and then he quotes the prophets. I want to go back to that phrase in verse 14 because that's an important phrase. A people for his name. Do you know that's what God considers us? That's what God has all. That is an Old Testament phrase that James is, is pulling out there. That's who the Jews were. They were a people for his name. The church is to be a people for his name. Christians, we are a people for his name. What does that mean? Well, one of the things it means, and this is incredible to me, God has attached his name to you and I. Think about that. There are days where I wouldn't even attach my own name to myself. And yet God, the God of the universe, is willing, in a sense, to attach his name to us. And say, they're mine. They're mine. Wow. And that we are a people for his name in that everything that we say and everything that we do should bring glory to his name and exalt 
his name. So in verse 19, James goes on to say, Therefore I conclude that we should not cause any extra difficulty for those among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we should write them a letter telling them to abstain from things defiled by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For Moses had those who proclaim him in every town from ancient times because he is read aloud in the synagogues every Sabbath. And you might go, why did they pick these things out of everything they could have picked to add to you don't have to be circumcised? Well, then why did they add these things? All of these things that they mention here that they were going to contain in this letter that's coming up were things that were associated with pagan temple worship. And so basically they were saying, don't go back to the pagan temple worship that many of you have been saved out from. Don't, don't have any association. Break away from that. Break off from that completely, you see. They're not, in a sense, imposing law on them. They're trying to say, you've got to start breaking away and having a different lifestyle than what you were used to as a Gentile pagan worshiper of some false god. So then notice the decision. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to send men chosen from among them, Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leaders among the brothers, to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, and they sent this letter with them, with all of these things included. A decision. Finally, they had to come to a conclusion. They couldn't just continue to deliberate and debate about these things. They had to bring it to a decision. And that's so important because so often as a church, we can let things hang out there and never really close the loop or have the follow through that we need. And what this chapter is showing is they spent time debating, they spent time deliber deliberating, but then they came to a decision and they made a decision so that they could put this issue in the past in the rearview mirror and move on. And it is a great example for us as a church. It's a great example for us as individuals that whatever issues we have in our lives, uh, in, in our life as a church, that we come to a place where we can say, this is what we need to do about it, and we deal with it so that we can put it in the past and move on to more things that God has for us. That's why I say this chapter is one of the church's finest hours. So, I'm not going to rehash the letter, but I do want to direct your attention to the very first opening of the letter because, again, words are powerful. It's not just the way we say something, it is sometimes what we say. It is the words that we choose. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And notice how they open this letter. From the apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile brothers and sisters in Antioch, Syria, Cilicia, greetings. Notice, from brothers to brothers, or brothers and sisters. That's huge. Like, we're all in this together. We're Jews, but we're saved. You're Gentiles, you're saved. We're all family. We're brothers and sisters. We're not writing you this letter as the high and holy potentates of Jerusalem, the grand poobahs of the church, and we're telling you all, get your act together. No, this is a brother to brother, sister to sister. That's the way this was approached, and that's huge. Because even as soon as the letter was read, I think that started to disarm maybe any kind of apprehension that those on the other side 
hearing this letter for the first time might have. So, verse 30, when they were dismissed, they went down to Antioch, and after gathering the entire group together, they delivered the letter. Debate, deliberation, decision, now deliverance of the letter, because it would do no good if the letter didn't get there. And notice something. The church is the one that chose certain people to deliver the letter. That says something, too. It wasn't just, they weren't just going to send anybody with this letter. It was so important that the church stay unified and stay together and be one here so that, that they could realize who the real enemy was and the real enemy isn't each other. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and all of that, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6. So they delivered the letter. You know, again, I thought of this who would we as a church, what, what two or three or four people would we send to deliver a letter from us to another group to be our representatives if some, 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 something similar like this happened? Who would we want to represent us so that people could know that's who the people of the Oasis are? Because let's face it, not all of us at all times are a good representation not only of God, but of who we want to strive to be. Sometimes we're really bad representatives of God and maybe the church. I want us to be known for certain things as a church. Again, a church of worshipers, a church of people who love the word, but also a people who love each other, a people who have a kind and gentle and meek spirit about themselves of people who value faithfulness, all of those things. So I would be like, well, let's look for people like that to send, to represent us. That's huge. And when they read the letter, verse 31, notice the people rejoiced at its encouragement. To me, that shows you that God was in this. Because what was the outcome when the letter was read? It, it brought these two groups together because this was so, such a defining moment in the church. It, it could have started to, to fraction, and it could have been the Jewish church and the Gentile church forever instead of one church, one body, as Paul says to the Ephesians, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one in Jesus Christ. And that was all because of the way this situation was handled by the church some 2,000 years ago. So, Judas, verse 32, and Silas, who were prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with a long speech. I love that. That gives us pastors sort of an, you know, it's okay every once in a while to go long because it can be encouraging. After they had spent some time there, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and proclaiming along with many others the word of the Lord. Now we come to the last section tonight. Maybe one of the most difficult sections for many Christians even to wrap their minds around. Two great Christians who basically come to a place where they can no longer get along, if you will, and they part ways. But I want to show you something in this. After some days, verse 36, Paul said to Barnabas, let's return and visit the brothers in every town where we proclaim the word of the Lord to see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to bring John called Mark along with him too. By the way, this is the Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Keep that in mind. But Paul insisted that they should not take along this one 
who had left them, literally deserted them in Pamphylia and had not accompanied them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took along Mark and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and set out, commended to the grace of the Lord by the brothers and sisters. He passed through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. I want, I want to stop there for just a moment. I'll come back. Notice something, and this is a main point here in this chapter. All through this mundane, routine, behind-the-scenes, inner-organ-type stuff that was going on here, Nothing flashy, nothing glamorous, but the church was being strengthened through it all. Through the debate, through the deliberation, through the decision, through the deliverance, even through the disagreement, the church was being strengthened. I want to encourage you with that. Someday you may wake up and go, it's just another day, just another day going through the daily grind, nothing special about today. I'm just going to do the same thing today that I did the previous week or the previous day. You know, nothing glamorous about the day, nothing flashy about the day. I'm just going through the day. Listen, when we're a Christian and we can walk through every day with the Lord Jesus Christ and we have the Holy Spirit living in us and we have the ability to commune and fellowship with the God of the universe, our creator and our savior, and we even have the ability to be able to maybe get together with other believers and all of that, it never has to be a routine day. And even in the routine of life, those daily disciplines where we just keep doing the same thing over and over again, you have to be encouraged that you can be strengthened so much by just going through the daily grind of life because that's what happened to the church. Be encouraged by that when you wake up tomorrow and go, it's Thursday. What's so special about Thursday? Thursday tomorrow could be maybe one of the best days of your life because you're just continuing to just keep on keeping on as you make forward progress with the Lord, drawing ever near to him. But I want to go back to this disagreement because many Christians try to look at this and, and then start to choose sides. That's the way we do when, when Christians have disagreements with each other. Let's pick sides. Who was right? Was Paul right? Was Barnabas right? One of them had to be right and one of them had to be wrong, right? And as I have over and over and over again, studied this passage and read and then continued to branch out into what happened in the future, I got to tell you, I've come to a conclusion where it's not an either or. It's a both and. You see, I think in their own way, and I'm not trying to be, you know, sit the fence here. I truly believe this in my heart. I believe that at this moment in their Christian walk, both men were in a sense right. And let me tell you why. Let me tell you why I feel that way. Let's start with Paul. Remember, what they were involved in, it was life or death. I mean, these people, you know, they were getting stoned. They were getting thrown into prison. They were getting beaten with rods. This was serious business. And they were taking the gospel. And Paul was very serious. Not that Barnabas wasn't, but Paul was very serious about the calling and the mission God gave him. And basically, Paul's mindset is, like some Christians, we don't have time to mess around here, nor do we have time to, you know, uh, try to, you know, deal with, with people that aren't all in. We, we've got a mission, and it's a tough mission. We're on the battlefield. I mean, it would be like soldiers, and, and certainly, 
you all who have served in the armed forces, you could certainly uh, speak more to this than I ever could because I never was there. But when you're on the front lines or you're in battle, you don't want to think that the person next to you might be a deserter, might cut out on you. You want to know that you can count on them, right? That's how serious it is. And that's where Paul's coming from. He's saying, Barnabas, your, your cousin deserted us. He, he turned his back on us when we needed him the most. We can't afford to take people like that at this point. We're dealing with people's eternal souls and eternal destinies, and this is important, and the enemy is all out for us, and we just, we can't deal with that. We've got other things we've got to focus on. And I think in his mind, that was the right call here. But can you not see Barnabas's point too? Not just because he was family, because I seriously think, because we know Barnabas was called the son of encouragement. And he encouraged everybody, not just his family. I, I really don't think that him wanting to bring Mark along was simply because he was his cousin. I think that's how Barnabas was wired. I think Barnabas's thought was, I know he deserted us. I know he failed us. I'm not going to make any excuses for what Mark did in the past. But Paul, don't we all deserve a second chance? Don't, don't we all deserve a, another chance to try to make things right? And, and, and how's he going to grow if we just sort of push him to the sidelines? It'd be like a, you know, a sports figure sort of sitting on the sidelines and never getting to be in the game anymore. How can you really learn to play if you don't actually play? And so Barnabas's mindset would be, I understand he did wrong and all that, but, but Paul, we've, He's a, he's a young man, and he's got a lot to learn, and, and we need to take him along. So my thinking is, I, I can see both sides of it. Because here's the thing. There have been times, even in my 35 years as a pastor, where I made a decision more like Paul, where I said, nope, can't do that anymore. But there's been many more times where I made a decision more like Barnabas. And if I could just share my heart with you, and I think most of you who know me well enough to know, if I had to pick who I'm more like in situations dealing with people, I would be, tend to be more like a Barnabas here than I would a Paul. I would have been the guy that says, Paul, I get it. I know he failed us, but I'm the guy that still wants to bring him along and try to help him to grow because if, if we just brush him to the side, you know, and not to, to think that Barnabas was right and Paul was wrong. I, again, I think in, in their own way, they both could have been right. And here's the thing. Because they parted and got new partners, both of these teams were blessed. Both continued to go on and do the work of the Lord and strengthen it. And, and that's why I say this is also the church's finest hour because how many times... Do you and I hear of Christians who say have a falling out with another Christian and what happens is they turn against the church and they stop serving and they stop ministering because it's like, well, I can't get along with so-and-so, so I'm just done. I mean, we've all been there. We've all heard of stories like that. Maybe some of us have even been there ourselves. 
And so why I commend these men in particular in this chapter is because they didn't allow the disagreement that they had with each other personally to hold them back from the calling and the mission that God had for them. They continued to just grab somebody else and continued to move on. God bless them for that. Because too many people just say, no, I'm done. I, I can't get along with my other fellow Christians, and so I'm just done. I'm not going to serve anymore. I'm not going to, you know, minister anymore. Let me leave you with this. I want you to go to Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, and 2 Timothy 4, 11, and I'll close with these verses. I don't think these verses necessarily prove that Barnabas was right, but what it does prove is that somewhere along the line, Paul had a change of heart, and Mark certainly had a change come over him. Because as I said, he is the guy that wrote the Gospel of Mark. Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. I better find that myself. Notice Paul says to the Colossians, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you greetings, as does who? Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Wait a minute. Somewhere down the road, while Paul is in prison and he's writing to the Colossians, he says, oh yeah, by the way, Mark's with me. So they got back together at some point. And obviously, Mark was showing he was a different person now. He wasn't cutting and running. He wasn't deserting. He was right there in the prison cell with Paul. And then I love this, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 11. Paul says, only Luke is with me now, but get Mark and bring him with you, notice, because he is a great help to me in ministry. You see, what happened in Acts 15, that wasn't the end of the story. That wasn't the last chapter. That was just a chapter in the story of Barnabas, in the story of Paul, and in the story of Mark. God hadn't written the last chapter for any of those men yet. And too often, we come to a place in our life where something happens or something happens between us and somebody else and it's almost like we just sort of close the book and say that's the end when maybe that's not the end. Maybe that's somewhere in the middle of the story. Here's what I love. I love the fact that you have this picture that here's Paul at one time in his ministry who says, don't want to bring Mark at all. And now at the end of Paul's life, who's he want with him? Who's a great help to me in ministry? Mark. So Paul obviously had a change of heart towards Mark at some point, And Mark certainly had a change of heart towards ministry. He got stronger. He got tougher. He never deserted or was unfaithful ever again. And I love the fact that, again, if you go back to Acts 15... Everything that happened in this chapter was strengthening the church. It wasn't weakening it. It was making it stronger. As the church came together and dealt with things that needed to be dealt with and went through the daily grind of ministry and the daily grind of church life and even just life in general, the way they were doing it, I believe under the direction of the Holy Spirit and the leading and guiding of the Spirit and then obviously consulting the scriptures that they had, the Old Testament scriptures, 
they were becoming stronger so that in turn the church could strengthen those who came to faith in Christ. So instead of discounting Acts chapter 15, God sort of reminded me, Jeff, don't ever discount this chapter again. This was a really important chapter in the history of the church. In fact, it may be one of the church's finest hours. Let's pray. God, I thank you tonight for reminding us, God, that so often, even as Christians today, we, we look for those big, flashy experiences to sort of be the markers and memorials of our life. And yet, Lord, at the end of our life, I think your word clearly attests to the fact that it's not going to be those one or two big things or maybe even five or ten big things that somehow happen in our life that really made the difference or set us on a certain trajectory or brought us to the destiny that we find ourselves. It's the everyday grind and routine and daily disciplines of life. It is the cumulative effect over the long haul that really determines who we become as a church and as individual followers of Jesus Christ. So God, I pray that every day, each and every one of us, no matter what we have laid out for us that day, could wake up every day and say, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and your goodness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks, guys, for being here. We'll see you next week.